everybody to Learning with Belvista Studios. This is a place for my team and I to be curious for people that we meet across the world um, so that we can learn and be better practitioners ourselves. And today I'm very excited to have a friend Brendan on the show. Welcome Brendan. You champion UX research lead, extraordinaire, curious human, um, always trying to be better entrepreneur person, but I guess the framing and why you're here is, I think you have a lot of value to share with me and my team on how we do um, test our ideas better. So we are really around human-centered design and doing that from a training perspective, but you're from a UX kind of, you've come from a like web design, graphic design background. So I think there's slight differences in our industries. So I'd love to learn your perspective. And I know that you run a lab as well where people can go in and use your space to do it. Um, so that's setting the scene about user research and what the hell that is. So for people that may not know, I'm gonna start the first question off as, from a project's result perspective, what's the difference between a project that undertakes UX research and one that doesn't? Oh, starting with the, the hard questions, I see. Yep. So the, <laughs> the difference, I suppose, is if you're doing research, you're not guessing as to what the solution should be. And that's the, that's the main difference between the two. And it's not to say that one's more right than the other. I suppose it just depends on how much money you have to burn and how early you want to find out whether your um, hypothesis or your idea is going to connect with the people you're creating for. When you say money to burn, I, I don't want people to be turned off by going, oh, UX research costs money. And like, then they're like, oh, no, nah, we don't have money to burn. But I know that you actually mean something different about that. Do you want to? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, so what I meant was, um, what, what is, um, is more risky? Is it more risky to put your idea, whether that's for a service or a product, or it could be a marketing landing page, or anything, a physical thing? Is it more or less risky to put that in the hands of the people that you're intending to create it for earlier or later? And so when I meant money to burn, I meant if you've got heaps of cash and it's okay to do that once you've fully thought it all through and you've done all the hard work and people have poured thousands of hours into it and you've taken it to market. If you're, if you've got deep enough pockets to find out that the market might tell you actually that's not really solving a real problem for us or um, the way you've done it doesn't quite fit. If you're happy to learn at that late stage, then um, don't do user research. If you want to get your product market fit um, sorted sooner and with less money and, um, and with hopefully a better outcome in terms of the customer or the user, then that's when you want to be doing your user research and as early as possible. Yeah, love it, love it. So going back then to the question around a project that does or doesn't apply, have you got a good story of where someone may have gone to market and found out the hard way that this product or this solution didn't meet the needs. And then they were like, okay, well, let's go back and do the research at the beginning. And then how did it change? Oh yeah. I mean, 
I can't name names, but you know, there are tons of projects like this. So what um, the first eight years of my business was about was delivering these kind of projects end to end, you know, so we were often jumping in. It was often the solution had already been um, mapped out. You know, people were pretty clear what they thought they wanted and then and we would get on and, and do, a, do the best we could in terms of designing and that and bringing that to market. Um, but quite often you'd find that uh, it just wasn't, necessarily singing as well as it could do and the unfortunate thing with that is that when that happens it's very unlikely because of all the work that's gone into to date and all the investment that people are going to want to um, invest in rethinking things once they're live so it's almost by that stage and my experience has been too too late um, and that's sad because it's avoidable um, and it's also sad because that energy that you're putting into putting out that product or that service, um, you can't get that back. Um, mm. And there's a lot of sort of political things and organizations which prevent people from um, wanting to be seen to have failed or losing face. And, um, and that's probably a topic on its own, but I, I won't name any names, but let's just say that I've seen it happen time and time again. And that was part of what um, made me really want to shift where we're putting our effort and to the process and, and how we're helping people. Yeah. So what are some of the consequences then of not doing it up front? Yeah. So there's a common, um, a, a bit of a, an equation that gets talked about and that's if in a digital context, right? Cause I'm talking UX at the moment, it costs you a hundred times more to change a product once it's gone into production than it does to correct the mistake before it gets there. And of course the, the implication is that the sooner the better. So by that, I mean that say you're coming up with a new product, um, you've done your customer interviews or your discovery interviews and you've kind of honed in on a territory that you think um, is going to solve a problem for the customer or an opportunity for the business. Um, and now what you've got is a paper prototype. That would probably be one of the earliest expressions of what the product is. And so mm -hmm. what you do is you you'd obviously um, connect with people within your target audience and you put that in front of them. And there's obviously a bit of an art to that, but you do that and you'd be trying to get that feedback as early as you possibly could. So that by the time you got to something that's almost ready to go live, you've had several rounds of uh, feedback on that from people that are intended to receive the proper product when it does go live. And so mm -hmm. what that does is that reduces, I, I mean, I think about it in terms of there's a solution risk, and if you're willing to carry that risk and jump straight to solution and put it into production or live, you know, make it a thing that people can access, then, then that's cool. But what you really want to do is have a process that as quickly as possible helps you reduce that risk. And you do that by putting it in front of your users. Mm. Okay. So I guess I'm like trying to hold so much information because my mind's like, yeah. Oh my God, Oh my God. So many things. If, okay, so I can see it playing out as like lost money and like lost desired revenue, uh, lost resource time, you know, all the people that contributed to the project, maybe even lost brand um, and like trust and credibility. Yeah. Is there any other kind of consequences that you see commonly playing out? Those, those are, it's a pretty good summary. I think the credibility is a good one as well. It's kind of that loss of face uh, and it's not really that helpful to, to anyone, any of these outcomes. I think the, um, the, the challenge with this is, is that 
it's hard to quantify the value of something that hasn't happened yet. And because what you're talking about is a process of keeping connect, connected with the user and the customer before something goes live, you, you don't really have the luxury of testing two different ways of running this process for that specific project. So mm -hmm. by that, what I mean is that you're not going to be able to do like an AB test as to what was more effective, jumping straight into the solution or actually running the research before you got there. And I think that's the trick that um, as, you know, human centered design practitioners or anyone that's interested in getting early feedback from customers, you often run up against that objection of, oh, it's going to slow us down and cost us money. And the re response, you know, is, well, you know, what's more risky, you know, getting straight to a solution and finding it doesn't fly or taking a little bit longer and investing a bit and in understanding the people before we put it out there. Yeah. If um, ideal situation then, what is the process that you would recommend if someone needs to do to test their idea before they go out and face all these consequences, lost time, lost money, lost brand credibility, all that kind of stuff, whatever the solution, what is the ideal process someone should go through? Yeah. So the first thing you want to do is you actually want to look at what your uh, problem is that you think you're solving. So you want to actually take that as a starting point and you want to look back from there just briefly. You want to go back and you want to look at, okay, so, what are the um, assumptions that we have made? And how do we really know that this is a problem or an opportunity? Like what, what is it that led us to wanting to invest in finding a solution to this thing? Yep. And so that's what, what we would do. We would basically start there by having a quick look to the past. And yep. then from there, what you're looking to do, I suppose, is validate the, the problem. Like, do we, have yep. a real, do we have a real problem? And if the answer is, is yes, it's okay. Well, what is the nature of this problem and what's the best next step to take in order to understand it better? Mm -hmm. And so what we talk about is these, these two tracks of user research or UX research. One track is, um, is about um, uh, um, evaluation. So we already have, for example, a thing that we need to change that already exists. It might be an existing website or a product or something like that. And really what we're looking to do is um, add to that product and, um, and then get some feedback on how that's received, you know, because when you're changing things, people like we all say, we don't, we, we need change, but we're also not very good at managing that. And so if you change something that's really popular, you want to get an in indication um, from your users, uh, what, they're going to feel and how that's going to sit with them before you release it to everyone. So that's the evaluative track. So you would understand like how it performs basically like the change that we're suggesting to make, like how, how do people find it? Where are the problems? Why are there problems for them? That's when you've got something to look at that exists already. And the other um, side is explorative where you might realize, well, actually we don't know quite yet enough about this, but there's definitely something interesting here to explore further. And typically that could look like user interviews. So that's when you go into more, more interviews or into interviews for the first time. And that's still exploring the problem. You're trying to understand um, the user's point of view and their worldview, how they see things. Um, and you're not necessarily looking for them to tell you what the solution is. You're trying to find out what the commonalities are across your conversations. What are the themes that, uh, this is probably stuff in human centered design and instructional mm -hmm. design that you come across as well. You know, like what are those themes? 
um, what are the interesting observations that you have made out of that? And then from there, you might be able to be in a position where you can put something uh, in front of them. Once you've synthesized that stuff, once you've figured out what that all means, you might go into a prototype and then into an evaluative track as well. So it just mm -hmm. depends on how uh, well understood the problem is as to where you start and whether or not you've actually got something to show. Yeah, that's really cool. If I think about the problem, because this is something like we're trying to educate people on is like solving the right problem. Do you have like a, we call it a success statement and it can be like a smart goal is an element of that. Um, or it's like there's in our industry, Kathy Moore has this formula. It's like um, X will increase or decrease by X amount by this time when people do X. Do you have like a formula or something that you're trying to keep as that problem that framed like accurately that you can keep referring back to? So it's not ambiguous and you can hold yourselves accountable. Stakeholders are held accountable. How do you clearly define a problem in your world? Yeah, so I spoke before about understanding the uh, the problem, whether it's a real problem. And one of the tools that we use is a very simple tool. Um, you may have heard of an, a dude, a Greek dude called Socrates. He had oh, yeah. a method, the Socratic method. And so it's basically getting to the fifth why. So like, it's basically trying to answer with detail, like how you know something is true and what's behind that. And so that's, I suppose, part of our validation of the problem is that there's um, answers that make a lot of sense to those questions, to those yeah. why questions before proceeding. And, yeah in that conversation who is in the room answering those why questions who do you recommend helping you define that true problem yeah yeah that's a good question so depends on the organization but mm -hmm. if we're talking about digital products um, people that are involved in the product team so the product owner definitely anyone that's involved in the ux side of things whether it's a ux lead uh, ideally a development lead as well this isn't just a design conversation and in terms of design well it is uh, in a broader sense development i would include in that um, yeah. there's often stakeholders outside of of that core product team that are useful to involve as well so if there's a senior stakeholder like a sponsor of the project or something like that would definitely uh, want their involvement particularly in that initial discovery piece that discovery workshop um, yeah. and that's just to ensure um, again when we talk about our model we talk about um, part of uh, what we what we need to achieve is um, is this socializing piece so you go through your entire research process and then yeah, yeah. right at the end before you get the go no go to to actually do something um live you know like put something live or, or actually make it a real thing you've actually got to have laid the the groundwork for all the stakeholders involved to feel comfortable in committing to a course of action because mm -hmm. that's when they become accountable and so what we're doing throughout our entire process is making sure these people are in the room when they need to be and consulted across the process as well. And we're yeah. building that bridge across the, we call it the political chasm. You know, it's like this, it's like this chasm that exists. And if you haven't done it properly, all your good ideas start to fall down into this before they even see daylight. And so we're building a bridge across that through the process. I like it. And I have to say, doing what you've said with those people in the room, and we put users in the room as well, um, 
it honestly is so beneficial to the project. And I feel like, yeah, like you say, that bridge, it just makes it very stable. And then when people are like, I want to go like, I don't know, another way, not just straight across the bridge. You're like, hold on, the bridge is better. <laughs> Can you stay on the bridge? Everyone hold hands yeah. and let's get to the other side. So I'm going to back up everything you, you just said there. That was like a really poor analogy, but um, <laughs> hopefully people I can visualize <laughs> i've got you i've got you especially you wouldn't want to stray off the bridge in australia you might run into some things you don't want to find in the bush yeah there's nasty snakes down there <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but i mean it's it's so true and and a lot of i think a lot of my my first part of my career at least was tied up in the practice and the practice is really important um but it was more geared towards the technical side of things and i think like one of the great benefits of taking this human-centered approach to whether it's ux or service design or instructional design is that it acknowledges that a lot of the um, success of a project is driven by how well the team communicates and understands each each other and what the culture is like um, in that team or in that wider organization. And that's what we're really trying to do is, is we're trying to make sure that the culture and the communication are awesome so that you can actually create awesome work. And when you're first starting out, you tend to not understand necessarily the subtleties that exist and the things that are at risk for all the different people in the room. And so part of it, I think, is coming to terms with um, having empathy, which is obviously a topic that comes up a lot in design thinking and human-centered design for the other people in the organization that you're trying to influence or work with. Yeah. Um, so it starts like, it starts at that level because they can enable your success. Yeah, I agree. That was, well, you just segued into one of my future questions that I had written down. So uh, it is around that communication. And if we just think about the immediate kind of project team, um, like the project sponsor, your SMEs, people like that. What are your key characteristics or key processes to get them on the same page? If we think about it from, I don't know, you might have a sentence that you're continuously saying over and over um, or a question that you're asking or are there things that you can do to influence their mindset? Yeah, the design of the of the workshop, the initial workshop is really is really key. Um, and I think process is something that can save, save you a lot. Like if you, if you're trying to make it up on the spot all the time, then uh, that's probably not going to go so well for you. So yeah, there are a few exercises um, that we we go through um, initially. So we would generally do um, one or more expert interviews with those SMEs just to get the people that have the most insight into whatever the problem is or have been most involved um, to tell everybody else what their perspective is. And that's actually quite a, I mean, you talked about bringing users into the process as well. It's, um, that's really useful because it's hard to um, argue if you've all seen it and heard it from the horse's mouth yeah. and it's a similar thing i think with the expert interviews and setting that context um, and then we try and define um what once we've set that context we try to define as a as a group you know what are our actual objectives like what are we what are we actually wanting to learn from this research what are the things we're trying to prove or disprove um, and also i think uh, another exercise that's really uh, important is the sailboat exercise that we use, which is is, is basically, um, you know, what 
what's going to, what are the things that putting a wind in our sail in this project and what are the things that could, could drag us down? You know, what are the anchoring things? What are the things that, that could get in our way? And it's almost like a therapy session. You know, you, you almost have to think about these workshops as an opportunity just to clear the air, but set the platform for people and for the project to make sure that you've surfaced as much as you can and any, anything that could get in the way. And so mm -hmm. that's often a useful exercise to run as well. Um, yeah. mm. That's cool. And I, I'm reading a book at the moment. It's called Never Split the Difference. Um, it's basically book. about, yeah, it is so good, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah. If you even just not going to read the book, people just Google like the summary notes and they're like, someone's done really good summary notes and it has scripts and that, but it talks about, there's one point that I've just got at the moment um, where you basically put out all of your flaws and stuff up front. And Eminem does this at the end of like eight mile where he's like, this is all my shit that I'm carrying now come at me rap battles participant and they have nothing to say because he's already put it out there yeah and that book never split the difference is like the same thing like you're probably th i don't know exactly the wording but it's like you're probably thinking that this is going to take so much time and you're probably thinking i've got better places to be and you put out all those things which i guess is like that's yeah that could take the wind from our sails yeah. and i really i just see all those kind of things coming together and the benefits of putting it out there as you say, clearing the air, and then it does allow you to propel forward because you've kind of debunked fears and misconceptions and all the things that are going on in someone's head so that you're all just like, yeah, clear sailing, it's breezy, we're on board, let's do this. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I mean, that book, you're right. It's funny when you read these things and you think about some of the tools and techniques you have as well, and you can kind of join the dots between them. But Chris Foss, that book is is, is something that was yeah, it's fu fundamentally changed the way that I look at conversations. And, mm. um, and, and yeah, la labeling those things, just putting them out there, giving them a name, putting them, putting them there. It's a very disarming. And I think that exercise, the sailboat's one of those tools. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I hadn't ever heard of the sailboat activity before. Is there any others that you could just call out that we can go and Google ourselves after? Yeah, sure. So uh, you guys are probably more than well familiar with personas and empathy maps, but these are kind of like basic building blocks of human centered design, um, mm. design thinking. And they're often uh, depending on like the amount of detail that people have about their users or their audience, they can be a good place to start in a workshop just yeah. to get, clarity for the researcher um, who we're actually going to go out and try and recruit. Um, and so those exercises are two, two of my favorites. In fact, I think the empathy maps probably once you've got that persona, that's a really interesting one. You know, you're trying to get inside, you know, what, what are the, what is our, what is our user hearing? What are they feeling? What are they thinking? And what are they doing? Um, and, you know, what are the things that are getting in their way and what are the things, you know, what can we remove? Um, what barriers can we remove from them? It's sort of a good way of getting people thinking about who the thing they're actually creating for um, is for. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I just encourage people. It's like we do persona in our discovery workshop at Elvis studios. We do the goal, like it's all co-created the goal, the persona, and then the empathy map. Mm. Um, and it tends to be a two hour workshop. So we kind of bang it out and get all that done. But for people watching, just jump onto our YouTube playlist for the human centered design activities to learn how we do them. Um, and it's cool to hear that they're your faves as well. Cause empathy map is definitely my number one. 
Cool. Hey, just one more thing. I was thinking on that. Um, yeah. Facilitating workshops is um, is a skill for sure, mm -hmm. and it's something that you just get better with with time. But one of the tools that's useful for keeping people on track, because if you've ever been in any meetings with more than like two people, it's it's like it could go any way. You know, you just don't know. Um, is yeah. the parking lot. And so what that is is like when something comes up that might not be quite relevant to what you were talking about as the facilitator, you um, either can shift the conversation, ask them to write a poster and put it in the parking lot, or as people think about that stuff as they're going through the workshop and it's not relevant to the here and now, they can put it in the parking lot and you can come back and revisit that stuff at the end. It just helps you keep things on track. Um, yeah. Obviously people's time is expensive, um, you know, even if it's not money expensive, it's like it's an opportunity cost of what else you could be doing. So you've really got to find a way to keep, you know, when you've got six, seven, eight, ten people in the room, keep things on track so you can start and finish on time. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's so good. One that we've done just is um, we'll ask, we'll say, look, we don't, we want to tailor the conversation, sorry, we want to kind of have the conversation on point and like not getting off track. So we ask the people in the room to come up with a random kind of taboo word that we can all like call each other on so if someone's rambling or if they've gone off tangent or it's not relevant um anyone in the room can just say it the last one we did they said apples they were very polite but so literally someone would be like going on and on and then someone else would just be like apples and then they're like got it closes the conversation and then we just move on so i think it takes that accountability especially as a facilitator if you're not that experienced to cut someone and like how do you do that so you don't offend someone like it's a shared responsibility and you just get it and in the end you're kind of laughing about it and yeah so i like that i really do what what's our word gonna be um i don't know i'm gonna rainbows was the first one that came <laughs> rainbows, up okay so <laughs> i give you that vibe that's all good <laughs> Oh, I was looking over there. I seen colours over that side, so that's what stimulated. <laughs> it looks like I'm in the. It looks like I'm in a. I don't know the a Macintosh or something. A Mac Lab. It's very white. I love the colour you've yeah. got going on. And their old logo was a little rainbow apple. So there you go. And I feel like we're rainbow appling right now. So hopefully it's <laughs> yeah. Moving call on. it. Call it. <laughs> rainbow apple. <gasps> okay. Looking for my next question. Um. Da, 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 da. Oh, here's one um metrics so sometimes i don't personally do this very well um or we don't have time to measure the impact any um kind of tips for what metrics actually matter and which ones we should be paying attention to yeah so again i'll jump into the digital context yeah. metrics are um something that give people a lot of confidence and there's a danger in metrics, particularly when it comes to evaluating usability, for example, on a qualitative scale. So when you're only talking to say five to seven people or anyone, anything less than say 20 really, um, they can sort of give you some false confidence. And I'm not a statistician, so I'm not gonna to speak to any advanced stats here, but you need a significant sample size in order to really know within a degree of certainty um, mm whether to believe or not believe in um, some uh, feedback that you might be receiving. But generally in like a usability test that's qualitative, what we're looking for is any problem. It doesn't matter like 
whether it comes up more than once, because if we've seen something that someone struggled with, it tells us that there's a problem there and we probably should fix it. So what we're really looking for in that conversation is not necessarily like frequency and the rate of the problem, if it's a qualitative study, we're looking for problems and then we're looking to prioritize them at the end of the study. So um, not all problems will have the same um, you know, importance is other ones. So it really just becomes a conversation as to what we're going to fix in what order. Um, but you know, there are a bunch of metrics that you can, you can track with usability studies, um, you know, time on task, like how long it takes someone to do something, um, how many failures happen. So like, could they complete the task? Um, could they complete it, um, uh, assisted within the first assistance or did they need more than one? There's all that kind of stuff, but really what you're looking for is problems, and then trying to find out what order to approach them in yeah, and yeah. understanding why they're problems. That's the other thing. So I know this is kind of getting off the topic of metrics, but one of the methods that we use in a usability test that's qualitative. Um, and by that, I just mean a small number of people. So not statistically valid in terms of that insight is um, asking them to explain what they're thinking and feeling as they're doing it mm. so that we have another um, way of understanding the context and the issue that may may occur not just what we see on their face you know they're confused or what we mm -hmm. see on their screen it's like we're getting like like literally the and running internal commentary of what's going on and so a lot of that data is really hard to convert into metrics that make sense in terms of a dashboard or something like that it's just not that kind of research yeah and I think one thing I'd add that I've learned is when that's happening and they're talking out loud or there's confusion or whatever going on, uh, how they're feeling and experiencing what they're going through is as the person observing, don't jump in, like be silent, don't try and solve the problem, you know, like all of that is valid data and you don't want to jump in. So just chill, yep. be silent and just take notes. And at the end, I guess, of the observation, that's where you can go in and say, hey, you mentioned XYZ. Tell me more about that. 100%. Yeah, it's a real struggle sometimes for some of us not to insert ourselves into the into the experience. You know, it's like it's it is it's an art. Sometimes you have to sit on your hands and just like just chill and keep very composed because you're seeing stuff that you're like, oh, that's really interesting or I want to jump in and help you. But that's not your role. You're just there to understand what's going on and observe. Yeah. And I guess if everyone's still wearing masks for COVID, like you, maybe you could put masking tape and then put your mask over so that you're, you're not able to use your mouth. <laughs> just, just don't get your nose. Just, just make sure you don't get both. <laughs> um, all right. So one thing I noticed when you open your website, your company is called the space in between. I love you've got this saying, which is where brave UX begins. What does that statement represent to you? Yeah, that's a good question. So what that means to me is brave is about being willing to be wrong. And I think the challenge that we all face, at least if we've grown up in the sort of Western education model, is that it's really terrifying to be seen not to have the right answer. And we spend a lot of our time as young people in a system that grades us, you know, from A through to F generally, or on some other kind of scale because of the need to standardize assessments. 
And what that does is it creates this fixed mindset, you know, and you spend a lot of people spend a lot of time worrying about what other people think of them. And when you translate that into the practice of a creative person or, a, you know, you know, including developers in this as well, like anyone that's engineering or designing or creating something, making change, that is um, a tension that plays out. And what I observed is that there's a reluctance to put your work out there in front of other people and then effectively see how it performs, you know, like you're on stage, like it's not you personally, but it's your work. And that can be pretty scary for people. And so what I've tried to create with the space in between is a place that enables you to be brave and in a way that should be celebrated. And that's not about being a hundred percent right. In fact, the, the magic in it is actually recognizing that you're probably not going to be right at all, or at least not on everything. And that it's the practice of putting it out there uh, that you can use to refine it. So you can actually be more right in the end. And so that's what brave is. That's what that's about. I love that. And I almost like myself, like you saying that you've given me permission <laughs> now, you know what I mean? So that's really cool. And I feel like the people watching and listening, let's help them be brave because I feel like they're proactive people and they see the value in this, but where they might get stumped is that their boss is just like, nah, we've, this is the way we've always done it. We don't have time. We just need to get this project done. Do you have anything, any, um, what specific things could our awesome people listening and watching say to their boss, to influence them to let's do UX research for this next project or task. So first piece of advice is read Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It'll teach you all you need to know about negotiating with other people and actually <laughs> unpacking what is preventing them from doing what you'd like them to do. The second piece of advice is it depends on the culture of your company and what's, what's at risk, you know? Like if you think you can take a, a risk, and, um, and actually maybe run a session, even if it's a remote session, and then show it to them, and it has little to no impact on time or budget, then you could actually just take initiative, you know, take the risk, go and create something, show them. And that's part, part of it, I think, is showing, not telling, like demonstrating, like actually giving them something to look at, which is really like what usability testing or user research is all about, or any of these participatory processes, you know, like that you guys do as well. It's about involving and showing and bringing people into the fold. So you could take a risk. If that's not, um, not an option for you, you could resign. Uh, I'm not saying that you should rush into that, but if you really feel like the culture of the company isn't going to support the direction of the work that you want to do, that is an option that you have. Um, and that's obviously quite an extreme option. And there's many other things you could do before you get there. But I would say, take, take, take the chance, you know, do, do something and show them. Yeah. I like it. That's really cool. Well, Brendan, you're a legend. This has been really uh, insightful. I like it. It's given me a lot to think about and things to tweak within our own studio and how we approach things. So I appreciate that and you sharing today. Thanks. Um, all the, my pleasure. The pleasure is really mine to be happy <laughs> here anyway, to learn. <laughs> so thank you. Um, the, that never split the difference and all the resources to check out Brendan on LinkedIn and his company will be in the description of the video. So connect with him. You can reach out. You can definitely tell 
that he knows what he's talking about and is good at this practitioner stuff. So go check him out if he has tickled your fancy today. Um, and yeah, thank you everyone for watching. I encourage you to be brave and put something into action from the value that you got from this video. And we appreciate you watching. Thanks for joining us.